Welcome to Series 5 of Industry Minds. My name's Owen Woodgate from Tax for Actors. We are over the moon to be sponsoring this series. It really is one of the best yet. So without further ado, enjoy the show. Welcome to Industry Minds, the podcast which discusses the importance of talking about mental health within the creative arts. My name is Kathy Reid. And I'm Scarlett Maltzman. And today we are joined by the fabulous Drew McConey. Hi, Drew. Hi, guys. How are you today? Yeah, good, thank you. How about you guys? Not good. Bad. It's very hot. Yeah, finally. Very hot. I'm, um, <laughs> I'm self-isolating down in Brighton, so like we're like just literally a step away from the water, which is great. So even when the lockdown was kind of more strict, we were able to get right down to the water without really encountering anybody. So it's been an absolute kind of saviour. Oh, um, I'm so yeah. jealous. Me is too. It, is, it busy at the, is it busy at the water then? Do you know what? It's actually not. And even now that, you know, the kind of rules have been lifted a little bit, it's still really, really kind of peaceful. Both me and my husband were like getting really frustrated that like during the kind of uh, the kind of heaviest bits, there was all these pictures being posted online of like Brighton Beach being packed. And there were like pictures from like summers, like three years ago. But it was just all part of the chaos of social media of everybody trying to whip each other up into storms. Like, you know, this is live footage from Brighton Beach. And we know... <laughs> walking on Brighton Beach because there is nobody here um so no it's actually been really really dead I mean I think that Brighton is mainly filled up with people you know tourists most of the time so because people can't travel it's just the locals and it's actually been really really glorious oh amazing I'm very jealous jealous. sitting here in my West London flat with zero outside space (laughs) it's fine could be worse could be worse (laughs) it could it could so do we always start with a little game which is a word association game so the first thing that pops into your head okay (laughs) oh no this is really dangerous this is like the quickest getting to know you when you realize that you you have weird associations with things yeah okay go for it so the first one ballet history a flared jazz pants. Shame. <laughs> Creating. Joy. Gin. A tonic. Sunshine. Joy. America. Complicated. Family. Home. Happiness. Contentment. Pineapple. Every Thursday at seven o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say that and not pizza. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm not a pineapple on pizza kind of guy, I'm sorry to say. Oh, I definitely am. I definitely yeah, am. Ham you know and pineapple. I, um, I, I love is I went um, went on holiday to Ibiza a few years ago and we found the um, the Ibiza version of pineapple. It's called Banana Dance Studios and I'm literally not even joking about that. Obviously, somebody in Ibiza is going, "Oh, pineapple London, it's super cool. We're going to do like the sister branch. It's called Banana Dance Studios." And uh, I've been thrilled with everything. I'm thinking about what other kind of fruits you could choose to open up your own dance studio somewhere like Kiwi Studio. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely I love I that I mean I don't think it really quite has the same ring though to it can you imagine having like a, a t-shirt with like banana, banana written on yeah, it? it's, it's not quite the same appeal is you, it yeah you, you can merge the banana though you could get two bananas and then make it into like a little heart or something you're already running with this in a way more creative way than I ever could so <laughs> don't give her any more ideas she runs with every idea she has <laughs> oh dear uh, so um Drew, uh, we always start at the very beginning. Uh, where did your love for the arts come from? Where did it all begin? 
Um, I guess that's a bit of a hard question because I there was never like a defining moment where I was introduced to it. I think I was, I guess I was introduced to the arts really actually through making um, up dances first when I was really, really little. So back from when I was kind of in nursery school, I used to dance around, particularly at playtime, particularly at tidy up time. I would like, you know, have get a paintbrush or a pen or something and pretend it's a magic wand and I'd dance around the room and kind of magic all the toys um, back into their kind of boxes, etc. And my uh, play school teacher, nursery school teacher, spoke to my parents and said, you know, how long has Drew been dancing? He does it all the time. Um, and my mum was like, he hasn't. Like, we've never taken him to classes, but he does it at home all the time too. It's just obviously like a thing that he does. He'll probably grow out of it. And um, my teacher would say, you should take him, you should take him to classes because, you know, he'll get rid of some excess energy and, you know, he might enjoy it. So I went to ballet when I was, you know, I must have been, what, like five or something and absolutely hated it because um, I was the only boy in the class and all we were doing was kind of skipping in circles and pretending to be fairies and wizards. And I hate that, which is quite ironic because like nowadays I would love that, you know, I'd love to be a fairy right now. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but back in the day, apparently I hated that. So I, I, I quit the ballet and just carried on making it my own routines. And then my cousin actually started doing disco and freestyle class. And I loved the idea of freestyle because it, it sounded very similar to what I was doing, which is just make it up as I went along. And so I went along with her to classes and, uh, and really, um, you know, kind of the rest is, you know, kind of snowballed from there really, but kind of, I used to learn the combinations in class. And then when it got up onto the stage or into the competition, I would, you know, miraculously forget my combination and, and suddenly have this whole other routine that I'd prepared in my, on my own. So really, I guess, looking back on it, I was choreographing before I was dancing and, um, I got into dancing because I, none of my friends would dance for me. So I went and did it myself and started making the routines of myself really. That is amazing. I love that. Were you at like a proper like um like dance festival oh, type yeah. vibe? Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, so I was also with like disco dance competitions and you know, with the full sequin cat suits and and then amazing. went into, you know, there was a there was a TV show on at the time. It was called The Biz, and it was kind of like it was only one for you know a very short amount of time, but it was kind of like the British version of the fame school. It was like a TV show. And um I would kind of like have this epiphany moment that there was there were schools that actually like did dancing all day long and um I I uh, wasn't particularly popular at school um, because I was just too busy making my own dances. And I would uh, and I kind of, um, <laughs> this is an insight into why I perhaps wasn't so popular, but I, I went to go and see Joseph the Technicolor Junecoat when I was really young. It's the first thing we'd ever went to see, which I think is a lot of young people's first introductions to theatre, either through being in the choir or through, um, you know, going to going to see it, um, lots of school trips, etc. And um, and I'd noticed that the the production I kind of seen the similarities between the cross arch of the theatre and the same shape as the football goalpost so I decided to take up artistic residency inside the football goalpost and um and not really understanding the rules of the game I would always like shout at the lads and be like you can use the other one down the other end of the, of the playground you know what I'm using this one um and so you know I uh, I was putting on shows kind of in the playground and um and and, and yeah so kind of had a you know as you can imagine not not the best time at school and so when I found out that there was a place I could go to full time uh, to train as a dancer I kind of you know became obsessed really with um with doing that so I went away to Tring Park School when I was kind of you know 10 years old um and was there until I was 17. That's amazing and did did you go on to further training after that or did you? No actually I am I, I went to, I snuck out of a jazz class to go to an open audition for Cats 
And um, I had thought that it was the UK tour of Cats that I was auditioning for. Um, and also, like, I knew that they were only looking for one boy and one girl. So it was, it was just me, really, at 17, going, oh, I'm going to get a bit of experience. And um, anyway, it, they were looking for a kitten. So they were looking for, like, a young guy. Um, and I, I got the job. But when I actually got the contract through, it was for the international tour, not, not the UK tour. Oh, so wow. I, I did the audition, like, on the Tuesday, got the job on the Thursday, and I was in Germany by the following Monday. And so I never actually went home. I went, I packed up my dormitory. And so when I, when I unpacked into my flat in Germany, I still had all, like, my posters that I'd, like, pinned up on my cork board next to my, you know, bunk bed. Um, and so I like, turned up with, like, or just really inappropriate stuff to be moving to another country with. But just like, you know, I've got like my, my four, you know, already ballet tights and my four white leotards, and, you know, which is kind of ridiculous now. But yeah, so no, I, I left school at 17 and, um, and moved to Germany to, to start in Katia. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So you obviously started your dance career really early. So let's chat about that. Um, you had a really successful career as a dancer working with the likes of Matthew Bourne uh, before starring in So You Think You Can Dance when you were 24, I believe, um, when the judges said that you were one of the best dancers in the UK. So um, chat us through this time in your life um, and working as a dancer in the industry. Yeah, you know, it's interesting during this whole lockdown period, um, I've been thinking a lot about being a dancer. And I think that's largely down to the fact that my job now as a choreographer is is so uh, kind of p- part of the process of developing other dancers and um, and kind of creating work through the unique talents of other of dancers, really. And then, you know, with, as a teacher, you stand at the front and you kind of point and shout and encourage and throw energy like vocally um or, or through the imagination in, into the dancers and having to kind of teach classes through social media and online, like I'm having to do a lot more of the dancing. And so weirdly through kind of co- still finding ways of connecting with my community and, and dancing online, like I've kind of like, without even realizing it, been slowly getting back into shape in terms of dance. And I've, you know, forgotten how hard it was. I'm absolutely exhausted after this Thursday night <laughs> class. It's like, you know, and I'm still trying to speak and be encouraging and not look like an old man who's limping his way through these videos. But, um, so, you know, being a dancer is something I've thought um, quite a lot about recently. And, um, you know, as I get older, I get, you know, more and more, you know, in awe of dancers, actually, the bravery that it takes and also the commitment. I think that, like, nobody, I mean, it's performers in general, but, you know, obviously my particular experience and my particular passion is with dancers. And and I um, just, like, I don't think anybody really fully, I would say obviously performers do, but, you know, general public, I don't think people really understand the lengths that, that dancers go to from, you know, how young they start and what kind of level of commitment, not just, like, the pressures on their bodies, you know, and, and making sure that they're eating healthily for their energy levels, et cetera. But also like the effect that it has on their social lives from a really young age. You know, these are people who find a passion and they throw everything they've got to it at, at a time when everybody else is out getting drunk and having parties. And, and some say dancers don't do that, but there's a level of pressure on them. So, you know, the kind of commitment that comes with being a dancer is extraordinary. And, and the older I get, the more in awe of it I get. And, and uh, you know, so, so my time being a dancer is kind of, it's, it's funny in a way because I being a choreographer was always what I wanted to be. Like I, like I said, even from a young age, the impetus behind being a dancer at every kind of step of the journey was to get a deeper understanding of the craft, to work with as many choreographers as possible to understand their process, to you know fully unlock the the, vocab, the versatile vocabularies that are needed from us as particular as theatre choreographers. Um, and so 
in a way, my dance career was always choreography first, um, even though I wasn't particularly necessarily, you know, out, out, open or verbal about that. You know, that was obviously just something that was behind me. But yeah, I was really lucky with with where I was performing. And, um, and I think that I made every decision during my performing career to, you know, I never repeated the contract. I never went back into the same show. Didn't necessarily wasn't necessarily the most sensible thing to do most of the time. You know, I spent my entire performing career absolutely wholeheartedly broke um, because I was constantly chasing like the development period of every show going. So I was in. I was just des- I was desperate to get into the workshops. I was desperate to be in the rehearsal process, and and the performing was a major kick, but it was it was not the driving force. So I was always attached to shows when they were paying you fifty pence to like you know give your heart and soul, and then move on before the show became a thing and gave you your nice you know West End weekly wage or whatever. So. I launched my choreography career, you know, in really not in a very financially stable position, especially when that choreography career, you know, as with a lot of people, you know, you end up doing jobs that either don't pay or pay very, very little or just expenses, etc. So anyway, it, 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 that, that wasn't necessarily a question. But, you know, my performing career, I really, really enjoyed. I was really lucky to do a lot of traveling through it. So, you know, I, I think that was also a part of why I was happy to like settle down quite young and just crack on with the choreography careers because as a dancer, I'd travelled a lot, so I'd kind of done the gap year thing. Even though I kind of left school at seventeen, and then and then a lot of my work was international. Um, so I kind of feel like by the time I was twenty four, um, did so you think you can dance, and then pretty much straight up so if I that's it, choreography now. I was able to kind of settle down in my dancing career, and like I said, about thinking about my my dancing career because there's um, I I don't miss the standing on stage getting applauded that. Like that isn't something I miss, but what I do miss is the which is probably heightened volume in isolation. But I I miss the um, the camaraderie of being in a company because as a creative, you're you're always having to be looking at the overarching picture and making sure that everybody's um, content, happy, and supported. And that can make, mean that sometimes you have to have a little bit of distance. And so that that kind of feeling of making something together, I miss that. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you're, you're doing so much as well in lockdown that we'll get on to later, your micro musicals and your, your classes. You're, you have to be the most creative person in this industry, for sure. Like you're, you're constantly doing new things. It's, it's amazing. Um, and of course, everyone knows you for directing. You know, you've worked across you know, the whole of the UK to Broadway. Of course, you won an Olivier Award in 2016 for In the Heights. Um, And I think it's very fair to say that you're one of the greatest of our time. Um, Chat to us about... You you know, I I see this podcast, isn't it? Because I'd just be sitting here squirming and feeling really kind of like (laughs) blushing and awkward. So anyone listening to the podcast can just kind of assume their vision of me squirming while listening to it. I'm sure everyone that listens to this will absolutely agree as well that, you know, you are definitely one of the greatest of our time. Um, chat to us about, you know, your desire to create because you do it in such a truly unique way that is, you know, so, it's just so Drew McConey. Do you know what I mean? It's it's so unique. And um, yeah, j- just chat, chat to us about your kind of your process and your desire to create and what, what makes you create. Wow, that's quite a... Um... You know, it's funny because it's like, um, I guess, you know, so so if so, I'm a big lover of um, like theatre history and particularly in kind of like the, the, the legend of the director choreographer from like the golden age of Broadway and the West End. And, and it's interesting that they, 
yeah, I've read a lot of their kind of biographies. And um, what's really fascinating when you start kind of looking at these sequence of people, these kind of creative voices in the theatre community, they all, in their own words, they all talk about creativity or inspiration or, you know, ignited imagination. It, it, they talk about it in different ways, but they're essentially coming back to this, this same idea of um, like limitless possibilities. And what, what's, this ties into a little bit, the kind of, you know, it starts to weave into a conversation about mental health as well, in, in that I think that when thinking about being a creator or being like an initiating voice or, or having an opinion or whatever, I think that because ticket sales are very often driven behind the kind of delivery of a genius, right? So they, they want a name to put on the title. They want a name to be able to sell a thing because they want a brand to be able to assure the uh, audience that what they're getting is a level of class, a level of success, a level of brilliance or whatever that means. But actually that, that can kind of um, eat into uh, your, your process a little bit. If, if you're starting to have this kind of brand that you're trying to protect all the time, then you can kind of very quickly fall into the rut of, I'm supposed to be this visionary. I'm supposed to be this genius voice. I'm supposed to be this thing. Whereas actually, if you, if you listen to any of the kind of people that I really personally really admire and respect, you know, Agnes DeMille, Jerome Robbins, Bob Fosse, um, Jack Cole, uh, that kind of ilk of theatre maker, a lot of them talk about the fact that they don't consider themselves to be um, like, an, like a genius. That in fact, all of them kind of like repel the idea of genius and actually just talk about themselves as a conduit through which inspiration passes. And I think that when I started to work in that way, um, which was kind of trying to not allow myself to get this personal stress of like, oh, but, but I'm supposed to be able to deliver this thing and I'm, it's all supposed to be in me. And I started to think of like, oh no, my job is to kind of like hone my technique um, and kind of like give myself time with my mental health and kind of clarity of vision. All I've got to do is make the voices of doubt or negativity in my mind kind of quiet enough that I can actually hear inspiration and inspiration can kind of come from anybody in the room. So, you know, um, uh, I think it was Jerome Robbins um, that said that whenever he went into the studio, he'd always say, um, you know, kind of looking up there, whether that be to God or to whatever you, your your kind of belief system is, he'd look up and say, um, I'll take care of the quantity, you take care of the quality. And so the idea being that kind of like inspiration or limitless possibilities are floating in the air, sparking electric energy, little storm clouds, you know, fireworks, whatever that is, is floating above you at any time. And your only job as a creative voice is to set a filter through which those ideas pass. And, and, um, and there's no right or wrong answer. There's just, um, is, is the answer to this question appropriate for the world I'm trying to build? So I hope that makes sense in that essentially what, what I'm always trying to do is to uh, make myself as, um, I don't know what the word, word is, clean as possible, pure as possible, quiet as possible, um, empathetic as possible. Um, and basically, like if I set a filter, then the, the ideas that are kind of from up there, wherever that may be, pass through you. And, and, then, and then you're just in a position of doing a job like anybody else is in the room doing the job. Um, so, so in terms of like my desire to create so that's a little bit about like what process I try and put myself in in order to make sure that I'm allowing myself to just be a vessel through which ideas pass and then hopefully through that that gives um, everybody in the room a level of agency but also security so the fine balance of wanting to create an environment in which people feel 
uh, like they are totally valued and totally understood and that they're that they're initiating thoughts their inspiration can pass through them and be valid in the room but also be a voice of clarity um so that everybody feels safe in terms of like they're being led that somebody has a vision that basically together there is some there is somebody in the room that can bring the people together to create something that feels safe and clear and etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's kind of one fine balance in terms of process in terms of why i do it like i think if i if i really knew that um I, you know I, I think i'd stop doing it in terms of like you know for me and i can only speak for me is that like you know i spend a career um trying to uh you know work that out i guess in terms of like i, I don't know where this kind of um like really strong desire and need to make things comes from um i i feel like a, a deep need to be able to like tell stories that reflect our world make people feel less alone make people feel a little bit less weird um you know maybe that maybe i don't know if this turning into a therapy session isn't it like may, maybe that's like you know talking about me ne not necessarily being a particularly popular child i don't think what i do is for popularity but i maybe do it for those people that that feel a bit on their own maybe so you know i guess that, that that might tie into it somewhere but I, I do have this this kind of really strong hunger to create the things I want to create are things that bring people together not alienate people um and I think that that is perhaps that desire to create that passion for creation um is without doubt the most valuable thing I own um because it, and it's actually the thing that I probably spend you know that, that that I need to protect the most in in terms of like wanting to keep that alive. Um, and the moment that kind of disappears is the moment I'll start just working and making money out of it. You know, so that's something I have to look after. So I'm sorry that's not a very clear answer to your question, but um, hopefully it kind of separates a little bit of the. Essentially, I don't know why I do it, um, but it, it, a little bit of an insight into the kind of work I want to make and how I do it. Yeah, yeah no, no, it made perfect sense. It's, I love that. No, yeah, it's brilliant, brilliant to hear. And I think you said there about, you know, bringing people together and not wanting to alienate people. And I think that's what's so magical about the theatre is that it is a place where we all can connect as one and we, we feel safe. It's, mm. It does wonders for mental health. It really well, it's does. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm personally not a religious person. Um, I, I'm very, a lot of my family are like, a, you know, like I have no, I have no particular opinion about it's either way um but you know for me and this is going to sound really camp I guess but like you know for me theatre is a sense of religion it's a time like you know it's like I always kind of slightly joke slightly serious on the first day of tech I'm always like it's you know this this is our church respect it you know it's kind of like this is where a group of people congregates and believe in something you know but and and hopefully the kind of work that I like to make but in general is is the work where you tell stories that are intergenerational, that are epic, that are almost operatic in their ability to inspire and hopefully inspire people to live good lives, you know, and, and give people purpose in the day and make them feel less alone. And I, I, I could imagine that people that are really kind of, you know, um, have really fulfilling relationships with religion have the same experience. So, you know, for me, as naff as this sounds, like theatre is that, theatre is that church it's that kind of idea of people coming together to believe in something and and have value and have worth and feel recognized and feel together in something and and for me that that is when theatre said its best 
I love that absolutely um and I mean your work certainly does inspire a lot of people um you just touched briefly there on mental health so let's let's get on to that what has your relationship been with mental health so this can be personal or it can be just your view on it in the arts well I think that you know there's a um it comes a lot down to our training in a way like the way and I think that you know we are creating a generation of performers that have to be able to respond to the world right and so like our job is to be empathetic our job is to understand humanity our job is to like I say make people feel less alone our job is is kind of like profoundly positioned in healing in terms of what 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 our part in society is as as theatre practitioners whether that be performers or creative voices and so I think that my comment about training is that I think a lot of our, we are, we're trained in our art form very, very young. And there's a massive kind of emphasis push on strength a lot of the time. And that's, yes, that's physical strength because of what our bodies and our technique, um, sorry, what, what, what our bodies are required to do and the technique that supports that. Um, but actually, it's a really, really kind of amazing cross section. It's like, it's like two, um, it's like two lines that cross and, and art is kind of in the middle of that cross shape. And, and the, the one line is kind of like empathy and truth and which comes into vulnerability and honesty and openness. And the other line of crossing is technique, strength, resilience. And so like, you know, we as it's this kind of like really, really specific experience of the world where we are required to be emotionally strong enough to deal with quite a lot of rejection. Um, and quite a lot of personal opinions about ourselves, you know, not tall enough, not, not this, not that, blah, 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 blah. Like, like when you're given feedback, it is of your person. And, and a lot of young people are not only kind of having to deal with what people think about their aesthetic or their range or their ability to do a double pirouette, but also, you know, you know, a lot of people are teaching them like how they come across in an interview, whether they're a warm personality. Like there's so much inward looking that is that can send, I think, young performers into this absolute tailspin of like self-analysis, which is um, which is a very complicated thing. But then really, you know, you're you're trained for like strength, for athleticism, for, you know, um, absolute kind of almost stoic resilience to, to you know, dealing with negativity, dealing with knockbacks and stuff. But when you go into, when an audience arrives into a, a place of imagination and wants to be whisked away, what they're after is truth. And that comes with vulnerability. So that's why, for me, you know, the, like those greatest stars, if you, if you look throughout history, you know, you take somebody like Judy Garland, for example, like that woman went, like had to have such resilience to go through all the things that she went through. So that kind of inner fight, bite and strength was matched with the kind of most extraordinary, like open hearted vulnerability on stage. And, and so I, I think that it's... Um, I think that, you know, I, I've often said that, like, our job is not to be strong. Our, our job is to be sensitive. Our job is to be able to respond. Now, that's not to say that we want to be emotionally in a state of distress all the time. That, that's not what, 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 I'm, what, what I'm saying. But I, I think that, that what I'm looking for when I'm creating work and what, you know, it, it's twofold. I'm looking for it in the, in the theatrical experience of my audience, but I'm also hoping to be able to create an environment where I myself can be vulnerable and open and I can be, um, you know, open-hearted about, about situations. Um, but that, that comes with a certain level of, of confidence. You know, you have to kind of be confident. You have to be, be confident to be, 
vulnerable. You know, that it's um, so essentially, I don't think I'm making a lot of sense with this, but what, what, what I'm saying is I think that the, the mental health issue within our industry is a really, really important one because it's, it's key to being able to stand on stage and be able to kind of deliver a truthful moment. And that, and that comes with a certain amount of, um, you know, like I said, you know, I guess confidence or, um, yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, the, the, the support for the mental health side of our industry is getting greater. I mean, you guys are doing amazing work in terms of supporting artists. I mean, you know, the, the kind of shift in the industry in the last few years has been absolutely profound. And I think that it will ultimately make our industry the strongest it's ever been. And just to clarify by strong, I don't mean numb. I mean, kind of it, the, the most resilient it could possibly be because it takes work, you know, and people need to know that it's a part of their, a part of their training, not just, you know, something to um, kind of deal with or overcome. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, you do so much as well, I think, maybe without realising it, by creating opportunity and allowing people to, you know, have access to to your classes and into your world. And your company, the McConey Company, um, you know, is so successful at Pineapple. I think there's often queues out the doors, there's a wait list (laughs) to get in. Um, It's fantastic. And people want to, to come into your to, to the world that you've created and it, it's safe and it, it's so fantastic um, and even recently during you know COVID-19 um, you've went online each week with the online dance classes opening up to even more people um, you know why did you decide to, to launch the McConey company in the first place? Well I mean the the whole idea behind the company very much was to provide a platform that I actually didn't think was there at the time which was a um a company that would celebrate um theater dancers really so dancers that would predominantly be working in music theater um there are these extraordinary artists actors singers talents that um that were you know not necessarily being celebrated as kind of leading characters or at the forefront so the idea for the company was always about community it was always about opportunity it was you know the idea has always been um leading with the casting of people that would previously have been kind of in the ensemble and, you know, with casting announcements and putting people's names kind of up on the front of theatres and stuff and really celebrating the theatre dance community. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, I always get a real buzz out of the amount of people that come and engage with the company and young dancers and stuff, because I feel like what, the, you know, I was a dancer from the ensemble that essentially kind of decided that, that we were worth something and launched a company to celebrate that. And so I think that part of the kind of movement behind the company absolutely has been that wave of dancers that are that are enjoying the fact that, the, that, that we as a company are standing up and saying that there is value to being a dancer in music theatre, that there is a place of excellence for those people. Because I think that, you know, for me, music theatre has always been the art of collaboration. Um, and it is it can sometimes be perceived as like a kind of a hybrid of 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 
a mixture which dilutes something, whereas actually it is in and of itself a leading art form. It, it's something that is, you know, our skill is versatility. Our skill is acting through movement. That's not to say everything has to be like literal pedestrian gesture dancing. Uh, you, you know, like if you look at the choreography that was in Jesus Christ Superstar, that was all music theatre dancers. And it was like purely expressionistic. And, and the kind of level of commitment that was delivered by those dancers um, was actually absolutely the same level of kind of emotional abstraction, the emotional kind of artistry that would be delivered in a, in, in a contemporary dance company. Um, and so these dancers have the versatility and the ability to commit to these kind of physical worlds in the same way that any other dance company does. And I was also noticing that a lot of people were who trained all their life as like, you know, absolutely kick-ass dancers that were like the top of their game at kind of 22 years old when they should be starting to really peak and, and change the landscape of music theatre dancers were kind of going, oh, I'm only going to play parts now. And, and we're like going into auditions and like pretending to not be able to dance and like wearing non-dance shoes so they'd be taken seriously as like to get covers or to get parts or whatever. And it was, you know, I don't, I'm not passing any negative judgment on that. It was just an observation that's kind of saying like, wow, like actually right at the core of our industry, some of our greatest people are pretending to not be good. Um, and that's uh, what, what can that have long term on our industry if the greatest dancers of our time are wanting to be wanted to move into only acting and singing? And that's because of the pay grade difference. But it's also largely down to the level of respect that they feel they will, will gain by playing leads in musicals. And so what I wanted to do with the company was create a, an environment where people would go, would aspire, you know, hopefully if the company gets the level that I would like it to one day be at, it's a place to, to, to uh, for a music theatre or a theatre dancer to aspire to, to kind of say there is a place for excellence for me, for something for, you know, as a theatre dancer, I can wear, you know, a pair of, you know, killer Leduca heels and absolutely, you know, dance my heart out and that be a place where, yes, I can play a lead on the Old Vic main stage as a theatre dancer and I can be taken seriously. Like, I've got somewhere to be. Whereas, you know, like my generation, my, you know, the, the greatest aspiration that I could, I could, um, you know, work towards was playing Mr. Mistopheles in Cats, was playing The Spirit in Chicago, was getting into chorus line, but all of these were essentially ensemble dance shows. I mean, Mr. Mustafa's was probably like the, the the peak that you could as a male dancer. It's probably Cassie if you if you're a female dancer. Um, but your your aspiration, and they're always like a like a small moment within uh, within a show. So. Yeah, so the company basically was launched from an idea of theatre dance community. It was a place to hopefully inspire and a home to aspire towards. And really a kind of the long-term hope is that it, it becomes a, a kind of a centre for excellence for theatre dancers um, to tell stories, play leads, and, and hopefully get the level of respect that their training and their commitment deserves. Absolutely. And uh, you, I, I can't remember what the show was, but you rewrote a... Uh... I played, didn't you, and turned it into a whole dance yeah, piece. That was Jekyll and Hyde, yeah. So basically, I, I, took the, um, I took the kind of Robert Louis Stevenson original and I kind of completely re... I, like, I like wrote... I wrote a story that happened kind of like 60 years after the book. So the idea that the re-emergence of, of the kind of Jekyll and Hyde syndrome was reappearing in, in kind of the, uh, you know, the war-torn uh, 
rubble of London. Um, and and yeah, so basically took it as a play. The whole thing was developed dramaturgically the same way a play would be, but the um, all of the communication was told through dance. And that was kind of really one of the major opportunities the company got on that. That was at the Old Vic, yeah. That's amazing. I, I think there there definitely is a kind of lack of respect for for dancers. I know, you know, so so many of my, my friends feel it. And I think it, it certainly is something that, you know, has to change and that you are changing. So uh, hopefully, you know, it. yeah, hopefully it continues to, I guess, break the stigma about, about dancers, theatre dancers, because it is, it's such a massive, I feel like we were there a good few years ago, you know, in the era of kind of Cheetah Rivera and Ayn Reinkin and Ben Vereen and those kind of, you know, even like, you know, Shirley MacLaine, people like that. These were essentially superstar theatre dancers that became so kind of that were given the opportunity for shows to be written for them. You know, like you think of Sweet Charity, the vocal range in Sweet Charity is very specific. And that's because it was written to celebrate a a very particular star. and so, but, you know, we, not long after that, we went through a period where the kind of dream ballet, the kind of big dance sequences were becoming, you know, for a period, you know, less fashionable. And so the opportunity for theatre dancers kind of diminished. And, and in a way, you've got the new wave of, of choreo, well, not new wave necessarily, choreographers have been working hard for, for a while now to get us back there. And, and, um, and you know, I think that I'm hoping we can head back to that time where, you know, superstar theatre dancers can get to a place where they're recognisable and um, people can be making shows for them, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the industry will be better for it um, when everyone is seen on a level playing field for what they have to offer. Absolutely. Equality is, it's all about equality. Absolutely. (laughs) It all comes back to equality. One of the things we're really passionate about at Tax for Actors is education. Education about tax, about self-employment, about finance. I've seen firsthand how a lack of education regarding tax and finance can have a detrimental impact on someone's career, but also on their mental health. The stress of managing money, the stress of where that next paycheck is going to come from really can't be underestimated. And I guess that's one of the driving forces behind Tax for Actors. Yes, we want to help you with your self-assessment. Yes, we want to act as your accountant. But more importantly, we want to be part of your support network as you navigate through the various stages of your career, whether that's the ups or whether that's the downs. We want to be there by your side, offering our support and our advice. So if we can help you out, Our contact details can be found in the show notes. They can be found at the end of this podcast, or you can drop us an email on owen at taxforactors.com. Enough of me talking. Enjoy the rest of the show. So another thing that you've been working on recently is the micro musical lockdown series. What made you launch this? Well, um, I've been teaching classes, like you say, open classes on Instagram Live for maybe maybe two months now. Um, and that we've been doing those classes for free, really, for the kind of, you know, like I said, the theatre dance community to still feel like somebody got their back and that people were going through financial hardships. And we launched the Fund for Freelance Dancers um, kind of uh, charity, as it were, um, or kind of fundraising initiative to be able to provide financial support to some of those people that had suddenly found themselves out of work and didn't qualify for any furloughing scheme because they were dancers that would work on a you know a, a kind of contract by contract basis and um 
I noticed that um, what would happen on a Thursday night is the dancers would learn the combination and then they started to upload videos of themselves and tag me and the company in it. So every Thursday night, I would sit and watch all these videos of these dancers from all over the, like there's people now that tune in from like Spain, America, Israel, um, France, like, and so I've been tagged in all these videos and I've, on a Thursday night, I'd sit down and watch all these dancers and it kind of struck me that, you know, when you're auditioning for a film or a play, you send a, you self-tapes are a very normal thing. And, um, you know, you're, you're, you know, when I, I directed a play at the Turbine Theatre when we were doing the self-tapes with that, you know, you are committing to sitting down for four to five minutes watching just one person do their, do their performance. And it kind of struck me that, well, with dancers, you know, you do a dance audition and purely because very often you're dancing in a room of like 45 people, 50 people, you just cannot get people to dance on their own. So you're usually watching people in a group of five or six or four if you're lucky. And so it kind of struck me that I was sitting down on a Thursday night and watching this kind of like stream of videos of dancers on their own in their natural environment. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and basically like what a kind of extraordinary opportunity it was for both them and for me because... I was essentially giving them a combination of my material. So it was a bit, I mean, it's not an audition, I'm not casting anything, but it, like an opportunity for me to be able to sit and watch a dancer on their own do a combination that they've had as much time as they want to learn it because the videos are, I mean, they used to be up for 24 hours, they're now up for a week. Um, so, you know, some videos coming in, it's like, oh, this person has actually got like a day if they want to, to work on this combination, video themselves doing it, upload it online, and I will watch it. And so I was suddenly realizing that I was watching all of these dancers dance on their own with very like specific material that they weren't under pressure to have to like deliver in an audition, but they were able to spend as much time as they wanted to make sure they were in a comfortable environment to do it. And, um, and I just thought, you know, what an amazing thing that was actually leading to me meeting and being introduced to a whole wave of dancers that either because of geography or financial um, kind of limitations, they couldn't afford to come to class or they can't get to London at that time or they're working either because they're having to work in a bar or a coffee shop or whatever. They weren't able to come to class. So I had been introduced to a lot of new dancers. Um, and not only was I being introduced to new dancers, but when they were sending their videos in, it came in with their name. So I was like able to recognize the name. And also anybody that felt like they were particularly good or useful or kind of interesting, or I could click on their link that would take me through to their Instagram page, which would have like a wealth of like images, videos, and in a way through that, and I know Instagram is obviously very complicated because it's a very, it's only people showing a very particular side of themselves. but it was like what, like in a way, far more interesting than me reading anybody's CV because you can whiz through an Instagram feed and go, oh, that person was in that show. Oh, that person's worked with that person. Oh, I really like that person's style. She seems really funny. She's blah, 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 whatever. And so you start to get like an insight. So, so not only are these people uploading videos, they're basically sending me a virtual introduction to themselves as people and I'm watching them on their own. And I was like, this is like, we could have never have thought this up until this situation. And that led me on to... Um, you know, I was reading a lot and I've been doing like like a lot, a lot of Q&As at colleges. Um, I think I've pretty much done a Q&A at every major college now. Um, even Same colleges thing. I'm embarrassed to say that I, I hadn't really heard of before um, that I had kind of come across during this time and like, you know, all over the country, like doing Q&As at schools. And um, and I was listening to the kind of needs and, and kind of uh, worries and concerns, particularly the graduating year of 2020 and how they feel like they've missed their opportunity to be seen and they don't know how to get on the conveyor belt of auditions, blah, blah, blah. And so I kind of 
basically put those two things together and kind of going, wow, there's a real need for people to feel um, like they have the opportunity to be seen by the industry. And then there's this opportunity that like, I feel like I'm, you know, all these people are saying, I, nobody can see me. And there was me going, oh, I'm seeing more people than I've ever seen in my life. Um, and so I realized it was a certain level of commitment that I'd given to, um, I, I commit to sitting down and watch videos, blah, blah, blah. So what I did was I then um, decided to, uh, contact a kind of group of you know other creatives in the industry and say look this is my experience I'm really enjoying it what they're doing is they're learning material that I put online are you interested and if if you made something would you commit to sitting and watching every single one of the videos that you're being tagged in and they kind of all said yes and so this group of four uh, composing groups and four choreographers um, made uh, little tutorial videos and videos themselves doing the combination and basically we've hosted it on the instagram tv account on our on our McConaughey instagram page um with the idea that again with absolutely no time pressure should you want the opportunity to be seen by these you know four choreographers four composing groups that you can choose to either upload a song or upload a dance or upload the song and dance together or whatever it is but you're also doing it in an untimed pressured way so you can basically if you decide do you know what i'm gonna do today i am going to make Make four videos I'm going to get these four leading industry professionals to sit and watch me do it and um, then I'm here for it do you know what I mean so it wasn't something we're like forcing people to do um uh, you know it, it's not a kind of like nobody should feel guilty about doing it or not doing it it's just that so often part of the problem with our industry is the feeling of lack of control um particularly from performers like they're not in control of whether that cat and director pulls them in they're not in control of whether that agent submits them for that you know they're not in control of getting the job they're only control they're they're only in control of like their technique and being ready for the opportunity when it comes and so i wanted to try and provide a platform where actually they could go, do you know what? I can't control this pandemic. I can't control when my show reopens. I can't control when my college reopens. What I can control is learning four songs, learning four combinations and making sure that, you know, um, eight to 10 people who are in casting opportunities will sit and watch me do it. Um, and, and, and that's really where it came from. It came from trying to bring those two things together and particularly provide an opportunity for people who are feeling a little bit helpless. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Do, do you think um, it will continue through to when, you know, our curtains go up again? In terms of the musical, micro-musical yeah. lockdown? I think it's a yeah. good question. I mean, I think that the whole, the whole lockdown situation is making us look at new ways of interacting with each other. And I think for me, I... Um, I had my eyes opened up a lot to the kind of community that is uh, desperate for this kind of interaction that isn't London centric, you know, in terms of the people that are engaging with the company and the material we're putting out that are regional, that are international. Um, and so I feel like uh, I don't quite know if that specific platform will continue. I think it'd be exciting if it did. Um, but I think that absolutely I have a responsibility to to now that I've been introduced to the desire of these people that are not, you know, 20 minutes away from pineapple dance studios um, to continue to be able to provide opportunity for them and, and work out how we can uh, make the kind of, you know, the, the plan or the make, make the kind of goal of, of elevating theatre dancers truly national rather than um, just kind of in the capital. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's fantastic. And I mean, you do, so much it is you know extraordinary what you do but what do you do to to unwind and you know look after yourself do you ever unwind do you ever get a moment to breathe in the day 
Do you know what? Like, I, I get asked that question quite a lot. Um, and my answer to it actually isn't particularly helpful um, in that I, uh, like for me, the time when I can get wound up and stressed and kind of unhappy and is actually when I'm not making something. So in a way, it's a kind of reverse situation in that like, for me, you know, I, I just am that irritating person that will come out of the shower and go, I've had an idea. Like it's, it's kind of like, um, it's, it's a slightly reversed thing. I mean, in terms of like specifically in the lockdown, I've really enjoyed spending a lot more time speaking to my friends. I've been cooking a bit more and I'm really not a very good cook. So that's kind of been <laughs> joyful and actually like sitting down and actually, you know, sitting on the beach now that we're allowed to sit on the beach, um, which is essentially only yesterday. Um, but the, um, you know, kind of doing things like that uh, is the things that kind of, I guess, bring me um, kind of peace outside of making. But really, I'm kind of at my calmest and at my and at my happiest and my most serene when when I'm kind of making and interacting and collaborating. And my poor husband, Mark, has kind of been, you know, he's very creative and he's been dragged into so many of my projects in a way that obviously, you know, he's got his own career as, as a photographer and as a publicist. Um, and so, like, while we've been locked down together, it, you know, he's been dragged into all of my crazy projects and stuff so you know kind of I guess interacting with him has been has been really really fun because that's a, a thing that we don't get to do very often but um yeah I think kind of like I say it's not a very helpful answer to the question in terms of like here's my trick to unwind it's um it's kind of a slightly reverse crazy mentality I guess yeah. no but I completely agree and I think that's why you know a lot of creatives have uh, struggled in lockdown because you know it, it's forced people who have gone 100 miles an hour, you know, seven day, days a week to, you know, be confined to their homes, which, you know, can sometimes just be like the four walls around you. So it, it you it's know. It's like cold turkey on adrenaline as well, isn't it? For those, yeah. for those people who yeah. are just constantly sprinting around London, your adrenaline like operates so high. It's the same, I think, as like when you go like home for Christmas or you go home for Easter or something and like you realise the pace of your family's home life is completely different to your London life and you're kind of manic and, you, and your <laughs> parents are like, just sit down for a minute, you're stressing <laughs> me out. Um, you know, and I think in a way that, that has been a really good thing about lockdown. It's kind of like actually taking the notch the pace down a little bit and and think ultimately just check in with what 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 is actually fulfilling you and like what's actually is it that you want to try and achieve because you're on the kind of treadmill or you're on the kind of hamster wheel so manically to just kind of keep your head above the water and you know and I, I both love this and loathe this you know we're completely um programmed to believe the kind of the, the mantra of the show must go on it's like it's kind of almost patriotic like we will succeed because the show must go on well guess what the show hasn't gone on like the show has stopped and <laughs> it's, it's an absolute gift of an opportunity to kind of go, oh, do you know what? I'm not working right now and I'm okay. Like, it's okay. Yes, pressure's about paying your rent, et cetera, et cetera. But like on a kind of like emotional, personal identity level, you go, it's okay. Like, I, I'm surviving, you know? I guess so that's that's kind of like a, a massive gift in terms of like the taking the pace down. And, uh, and it, me and Mark have been talking a lot about kind of what we want to take with us into the new into the new world, as it were, like after yeah. this. And, and it's been really joyful kind of sitting down and thinking about all the many positives that, that we found during this period. And, and, and a lot of them we really desperately don't want to let go of. And that's, uh, and that's you know, 
having more time for each other, time to eat healthily, cook well, you know, see things, listen to the sea, listen to music that, you, that you're not working on. You just listen to it because you want to listen to it. Exercising, you know, it's things like that that I, I really, really enjoyed. And, and I want to try and fight for a little more of that in, in you know, when chaos kicks in again. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I think a lot of people have said about like what they want to see kind of change and the fact that we don't need to go back to how everything was, that we can maybe be a bit kinder and a bit more empathetic to um, each other. Um, so on that kind of topic, what do you think that we can change in the arts to support more of our younger choreographers and directors? I think that there's, you know, it, it, that kind of fight is is something that, that I what was kind of wanting to be part of even before lockdown happened in terms of like understanding that we as an art form you know it, it, it's about the intergenerational pass on isn't it you know it's kind of like you can watch as many instagram videos as you like in terms of people being brilliant in the dance studio but like how do you understand the actual desire to change the temperature in a in a live room and um, if that isn't passed on kind of through you know and the kind of what you learn from generation to generation is is not the technique of what you should be making it's the kind of skeleton of how you should be unlocking and you know so the people that are 10 years younger than me have a responsibility to tell different stories to the ones that I'm making and my job is to tell stories and tell them in ways that is different to the people 10 years above me but that's not to say that running through the spine of those three generations of choreographers or directors or theater makers is not the same kind of belief desire um, and kind of technical support system that that is about unlocking a theatrical experience. So I think that when we get back to it, I, 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 one of the things I've personally really enjoyed about the lockdown is this feeling that the industry is coming together to celebrate all the things that make us the same. And I feel like that you know there has been times through recent years where the industry, um, particularly on Twitter, can actually just be shouting at each other for the things that make us different. And that's not to say that anybody that has a strong opinion about how their experience of the world leads them to an opinion different to somebody else's is, is invalid. You know, that's, I, I don't, uh, I'm not saying that any of the kind of passion behind any of the arguments is wrong. And theatre, if theatre can't have those arguments, then where, you know, where can we have those arguments? You know, like we are supposed to be at the forefront of, of, of the state of the world, as it were. Um, but, you know, just for a, a brief period of time for us all to, and I think that will, that doesn't pause the forwards momentum of theatre moving into a place of celebrating more equality. I don't think that pauses that. I think it, if anything, it, it will accelerate because it, it'll, it'll hopefully open people's eyes to the need for us to work together. And we're going to need to work together when we come out of this, you know, it's, um, we're going to have to come together to be able to survive this. We're all going to have to think creatively. We're going to have to, you know, develop creative collaborative relationships that are about the greater good of the theatre industry and to to make sure our art form survives, which of course it will. Um, And so I kind of hope that this feeling of togetherness can last a little bit longer um, and that that we utilise it, that basically every tool in our kit, every part of our armoury locks into kind of, you know, a unison everyone starts walking in time with each other and marching forwards rather than kind of like shuffling sideways and bands you know banging into each other's shoulders because i think um if we can do that i think that's going to be truly thrilling and, and a lot of people will learn a lot about their you know privileges or their the importance of their voices along the way um so i hope that kind of continues and, and i hope through that we can continue to develop 
um, you know, the next generation of theatre makers because we have a responsibility to, and there's a kind of a sweet sadness and a sweet, you know, joy in 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 the kind of cycles of those voices coming forward. And, you know, it's uh, it, it's it's very much part of the development of theatre. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've got two more questions for you. Um, <laughs> the second to last one is about when you are in that um, rehearsal process or audition room, you know, how, how do you create a safe atmosphere for your cast or auditionees? What is it that you, you like to focus on to, you know, I, I know you're very collaborative. How, how do you bring out the best in, in people and make them feel safe and, and yourself? Well, firstly, like the um, the desire to create a, a kind of a safe—I mean, safe—safe is a very particular word, isn't it? But a kind of like a supportive um, environment. The reason I say safe is a kind of word because I want people to feel um, supported enough to go to somewhere that is unsafe. I don't mean physically that like they're going to hurt themselves or anything, but like the, the kind of desire to create an environment in which kind of inspiration and creativity can kind of be beautifully collide with you know empathy and equality um and and kind of dealing with people with dignity that that i believe is absolutely fundamentally my job like that that's kind of that's not something that i feel like oh there's a thing to do and but i choose to do it in this way i i feel like it's my job as the kind of leader of the room as it were to be able to kind of gently guide the process in a way that ultimately arrives at a place which is thrilling truthful and the way you know i don't i don't know if there is a i i I personally can't work in a way that through any level of fear or insecurity or competitiveness or anger or, or, or kind of internal fighting or politics how that can ever allow somebody to feel like they can share share that going back to the idea of inspiration passing through somebody my job is to kind of unlock everybody as a vessel and to make them feel, you know, um, supported. I, you know, I, I like to laugh quite a lot. I, you know, I, I like to set an environment in which people don't necessarily take me too seriously. And then therefore, hopefully they don't take themselves too seriously, which basically means that we can all essentially like throw energy and ideas into the middle of the room rather than kind of like, you know, fighting for any kind of control or fighting for any kind of power over anybody else in the room. So um, you know, my job is to make sure that everybody's leaning in the same direction and um, it's the job of a director. Um, and um, <laughs> so, so yeah, so really, you know, I think that, you know, my job is to, is to really be empathetic to everybody in the room, be empathetic to the characters that we're trying to make. And, and, and you know, it's a fine line of, of getting to know the people in the process well enough um, to make them feel like I'm able to guide them in ways that that, that elevates um, them, but also not become too kind of like, you know, to not encroach in, in you know, because obviously a lot of performers are, um, you know, want their own, like, you know, privacy. And, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a job. They've gone to work. Do you know what I mean? So it's this kind of like fine line of getting to know what they need intimately to be able to... Um, liberate and accelerate their brilliance and their uniqueness but also give them the space and the respect that I'm not kind of prying into something personal that can make them feel insecure or whatever so I think that my job is as a facilitator mainly if I've done my job well um nobody nobody 
um, no audience member will ever think about me. Like I'm not trying to make the audience ever think about Drew McCurney. I'm trying to make them believe in the story or get completely lost in a, in a passage of emotion. And so I have to, that has to be true in the, in the, like, of course my voice has to be loud in terms of making sure people feel safe, but like my, my opinion shouldn't be at the front of the performer. My support should be behind the performer so that the performer is at the forefront of the audience's experience. So the, the process um, has to reflect that. Uh, so that's mainly kind of with rehearsals, is creating an environment where people can feel um, relaxed enough to share ideas, inspiration, go with the flow, make a fool of themselves, but feel inspired enough to want to work hard because what we do hurts, you know, it's particularly dancers, you know, you, it hurts. I mean, it's painful. And so you've got, you've <laughs> got to make the, um, the dancers believe in what they're giving their body to. Um, so they, want, they need to be inspired enough to work their asses off and supported enough to work their hearts out. Um, and then when it comes to the casting process, uh, it's so brave what people do. I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, it's kind of like, and I get, you know, I'm like a kind of an emotional wreck most of the time during auditions because I get so moved by like people turning up and going for it, throwing themselves into it. And, um, and, I, and so I think that, you know, in my number one thing in an audition process is, is looking at the people who throw energy into the group. So people that are clapping first for each other, whooping for each other, supporting each other. And again, I try to, um, I try to be, I, I try to let them know that I'm not taking myself too seriously in the audition, which hopefully relaxes them, takes the pressure off what I'm thinking. And so that, again, I'm not at the forefront of what of their experience of the audition. You know, it shouldn't be, oh, I'm like auditioning for Drew. It should be like, oh, I'm here to kind of like learn a bit about the show, do a bit of material. And it's like a two-way thing of like, am I right for this? Do you think I'm right for this? Do I think I'm right for this? There's a kind of dialogue, which of course puts them in a... Um, in a slightly more empowered position within the creative process, which not only gives them a better experience, but also gives me a quicker insight into what they're going to be like in the rehearsal room. Um, so, yeah, so I guess that kind of really it's through empowering um, on both sides, both on the creative process and on the casting process it's for people to feel kind of that they, that they are valued and they have value in the process because I'm sure as hell going to need them to perform with value when the audience turn up. So I can't be spending the entire process diminishing their value and then asking them to sell something high, of a high worth when the curtain goes up if, I, if I've damaged that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do I think you said. should write a book? <laughs> a book? It'd be, it'd be yeah. Like, I'll tell you what about my book, it'd be awful spelling and terrible, terrible <laughs> punctuation. You know what I mean? You it's like, I'd have to get, that'd be poor, poor Mark, the husband again, back on that spell check again. <laughs> oh my God. Um, yeah. Do you know what I would, I would like to? I think, it, I think I actually was asked to um, a few years ago. I was supposed to be writing a book during uh, the making of King Kong on Broadway. I got approached from the wow. publisher that wanted to basically track the 12 months because within 12 months, I was opening Strictly Ballroom in the West End and then opening King Kong on Broadway. So there was like this 12 months where I was basically having two um, like debut, two, two premieres, like West End premiere and, and Broadway premiere. And I really naively was like, yeah, great, I'll write a book. Yeah, lovely, I'll do that. And then of course, like when on earth I thought I was going to have time to literally <laughs> write like a sentence. So it was very quickly, like three weeks and I was like, look, I have not written a single thing. I'm so sorry I don't have time. But I, I would like to at some point. I think if I did, it wouldn't be about like my creative diary. I think I would love to write a book about um, like unlocking creative process. Like I would, I would love to do that. That. and that's kind of that's like a goal for maybe you know when I'm 60 or something and uh, would love to kind of write down and pass on really some of the tools that I've learned into unlocking creativity but one day 
Yeah. Gosh, it's not? exciting. It'll be on everyone's Christmas list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Amazing. I'll certainly buy it. Um, so our final question for you, Drew, which we ask everybody, could you walk into a room today and say, I'm having a bad mental health day? Hmm, that's a very interesting question. Could I, as in, would I feel confident to do it? Yeah. So it's not necessarily saying the words, I'm having a bad mental health day, but if you went into a room and someone said, how are you? And you went, I'm not feeling too great today. I think actually, do you know what? That is maybe something that lockdown has given me is that I do feel like I have been much more open when people have asked me how I'm doing about specifically where I'm at. And I think that the confidence to do that has come from a collective that everybody is starting to share when they're having an up and down because we're all dealing with this kind of crazy pivoting feeling of like exhilaration and absolute despair you know from from like complete kind of like I can take on the world now's my time to reinvent theatre um so like the next again I literally can't clean my teeth I, I can't I can't clean my teeth do you know what I mean it's literally like that kind of pivot um and so I don't know I think that I mean it's a hard one for me to answer because whenever I get asked to talk about mental health. Um, I it's something that I feel very passionate about being an active voice in making sure that there is a platform for people to you know explore how to better understand their mental health and stuff. I find it personally very complicated to talk officially about it because I have I've personally never struggled with my mental health. And so it's that thing where I want to be an ally and an active voice for change within the industry and I don't underestimate that my position as a theatre practitioner and as the person that is in a position of being able to employ people it is absolutely my job and I have a huge part to play in creating an environment where people are safe to come into the room and say I'm just not having a good day I'm not having a good mental health day like it's something I is very much part of the way that I work it's very much part of what I believe in but it's it, it, it when I talk about because I personally have never never necessarily struggled with my mental health, I feel very complicated about making sweeping statements about how I deal with my mental health because it's not I'm very I, I understand that it, 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 it's it, it's like it's a position of somebody coming from a position of privilege. You know, it's, it's basically me saying I'm very lucky to have been um, in. I'm very lucky to have not suffered up until now with any particular complications with it. And so I don't want to falsely stand up and kind of say, this is, this is how I deal with it. If you know what I mean, because I I understand my fortune in that. And, um, and so I've never really thought about whether I would go in and say, I'm having, I think like, you know, I think when I've been having a bad day or I'm stressed or something's like going on with my family or something, I absolutely am open with my associates or the people that are very close to me in a way that like I would be with my best friend, you know? So one of my best friends is Ebony Molina and she's my associate choreographer and associate director and a lot of things. And we're very, very close. And so um, anytime I have been dealing with anything with my health or with my family or anything that I don't want to bring into the room, like I will tell her straight away. Like I will literally go over and be like, right, I just need you to, you know, and I'll do my, like my matter of fact way. That's like, well, I just need you to know for today that this has happened and this has happened. I just need you to know that. And then like, I'll just walk off and she'll be like, okay. <laughs> um, but like, it, it's, um, it's a complicated question to answer because I want to create an environment where everybody feels like they could do that. Um, but I have my own way of kind of, relying on my support system so um but I think I'm becoming much more open to when I'm finding things hard um and I think that lockdown has really helped 
propel that, um, my openness to that. But I, I totally understand that my complicated answer to that very simple and articulate question is also highlighting the work that needs to be done within the industry in terms of, um, you know, it's it's me better understanding what position I can play in bettering the industry and its understanding of, of open dialogue about mental health because I've been very much part of creating open dialogue about mental health. Um, but on a personal level, it's something I find hard to answer because I feel like I would be talking on behalf of a group of the industry that, that I, I can't necessarily say I've suffered alongside with. Yeah. And there's no right or wrong answer to that question. We get a different answer every single time we ask it, which is why we ask it. And everyone's opinion and everyone's um, what they want to do to, to better mental health is completely, completely valid, mm. whatever side of it you're coming from. Which is partly so. what mental health is, isn't it? It terms about, yeah. you know, in terms of yeah. like being being able to fully listen to the things that you need and being able to make sure that you're putting yourself in environments where you can help yourself and that you can ask for the help when you need it and there's no stigma in asking for help which is all things I, I really really do believe in yeah absolutely drew thank you so much we have one more game to play oh, before great. we let you go um and this is called finish the sentence oh good all right okay, okay. <laughs> my favorite ice cream flavor is butternut um not butternut what's it called um butterscotch butterscotch yeah sorry Butters- oh yeah butterscotch my favorite ice cream flavor is butterscotch lovely if I could live anywhere in the world and not have it affect my career it would be Seattle oh lovely we kind of answered this before but I like to put this one in here pineapple on a pizza is terrible (laughs) terrible I'll Gross forever fight for a pineapple on pizza. Oh, we will. <laughs> Sorry. And it's very Sorry. split when we ask that question. Half the guests love it, half the guests hate it. <laughs> um, my favourite tube line is? My favourite tube line is probably the Northern line. Oh. My favourite style of dance is? Narrative dance. Lovely. Uh, in the future, I want to? Work with as many different people as possible. If I was stranded on a desert island, my one item would be? Music. So some, a device upon which to play music. Everyone should be more? Open. And finally, my favourite show I've choreographed is? Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh, hey. Amazing. Fantastic, Drew. Thank you so, so much for chatting to us. Yeah, thank you so amazing, much for having me. Amazing interview. So thank you so much. It's been such a uh, pleasure. It's been, uh, it's been great. It's made me really think about things in a different way. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Industry Minds. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can reach us on our email, which is info at industryminds.co.uk. For all counselling inquiries, please email mary at industryminds.co.uk. You can find us on social media. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are at industrymindsuk. There you can keep up to date with all our latest announcements. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week.